Chapter Three, Part One of Miss Mapp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Greensmith of JaneGS.com. Miss Mapp by E. F. Benson. Chapter Three, Part One. Diva was sitting at the open drawing-room window of her house in the high street, cutting with a pair of sharp nail-scissors into the old chintz curtains which her maid had told her no longer paid for the mending. So, since they refused to pay for their mending any more, she was preparing to make them pay, pretty smartly, too, in other ways. The pattern was of little bunches of pink roses peeping out through trellis-work, and it was these which she had just begun to cut out. Though Tilling was noted for the ingenuity with which its more fashionable ladies devised novel and quaint effects in their dress in an economical manner, Diva felt sure, ransack her memory though she might, that nobody had thought of this before. The hot weather had continued late into September and showed no signs of breaking yet, and it would be agreeable to her and acutely painful to others that just at the end of the summer she should appear in a perfectly new costume before the days of jumpers and heavy skirts and large woolen scarves came in she was preparing therefore to take the light white jacket which she wore over her blouse and cover the broad collar and cuffs of it with these pretty roses the belt of the skirt would be similarly decorated and so would the edge of it if there were enough clean ones the jacket and skirt had already gone to the dyer's, and would be back in a day or two, white no longer, but of a rich purple hue, and by that time she would have hundreds of these little pink roses ready to be tacked on. Perhaps a piece of the chintz, trellis and all, could be sewn over the belt, but she was determined to have single little bunches of roses peppered all over the collar and cuffs of the jacket, and if possible round the edge of the skirt. She had already tried the effect, and was of the opinion that nobody could possibly guess what the origin of these roses was. When carefully sewn on, they looked as if they were a design in this stuff. She let the circumcised roses fall onto the window-seat, and from time to time, when they grew numerous, swept them into a cardboard box. Though she worked with zealous diligence, she had an eye to the movements in the street outside, for it was shopping hour, and there were many observations to be made. She had not anything like Miss Mapp's genius for conjecture, but her memory was appallingly good, and this was the third morning running on which Elizabeth had gone into the grocer's. It was odd to go to your grocer's every day like that. Groceries twice a week was sufficient for most people. From here on the floor above the street she could easily look into Elizabeth's basket, and she certainly was carrying nothing away with her from the grocer's for the only thing there was a small bottle done up in white paper with sealing-wax, which, Diva had no need to be told, certainly came from the chemist's, and was no doubt connected with too many plums. Miss Mapp crossed the street to the pavement below Diva's house, and precisely as she reached it, Diva's maid opened the door into the drawing-room, bringing in the second post, or rather not bringing in the second post, but the announcement that there wasn't any second post. This opening of the door caused a draught, and the bunches of roses which littered the window-seat rose brightly in the air. Diva managed to beat most of them down again, but two fluttered out of the window. Precisely then, and at no other time, Miss Mapp looked up, and one settled on her face. The other fell into her basket. Her trained faculties were all on the alert, and she thrust them both inside her glove for future consideration, without stopping to examine them just then. 
she only knew that they were little pink roses, and that they had fluttered out of Diva's window. She paused on the pavement and remembered that Diva had not yet expressed regret about the worsted, and that she still popped as much as ever. Thus Diva deserved a punishment of some sort, and happily at that very moment she thought of a subject on which she might be able to make her uncomfortable. The street was full, and it would be pretty to call up to her, instead of ringing her bell, in order to save trouble to poor overworked Janet. Diva only kept two servants, though of course poverty was no crime. "'Diva, darling!' she cooed. Diva's head looked out like a cuckoo in a clock preparing to chime the hour. "'Hello!' she said. "'Want me?' "'May I pop up for a moment, dear?' said Miss Mapp. "'That's to say, if you're not very busy.' "'Pop away!' said Diva. She was quite aware that Miss Mapp said pop, in crude inverted commas, so to speak, for purposes of mockery, and so she said it herself more than ever. I'll tell my maid to pop down and open the door. While this was being done, Diva bundled her chintz curtains together and stored them and the roses she had cut out into her work cupboard for secrecy was an essential to the construction of these decorations. But in order to appear naturally employed, she pulled out the woolen scarf she was knitting for the autumn and winter, forgetting for the moment that the rose matter stripe at the end on which she was now engaged was made of that fatal worsted which Miss Mapp considered to have been feloniously appropriated. That was the sort of thing Miss Mapp never forgot, even among her sweet flowers. Her eye fell on it the moment she entered the room, and she tucked the two chintz roses more securely into her glove. "'I thought I would just pop across from the grocer's,' she said. "'What a pretty scarf, dear. That's a lovely shade of rose matter. Where can I have seen something like it before?' This was clearly ironical, and had best be answered by irony. Diva was no coward. "'Couldn't say, I'm sure,' she said. Miss Mapp appeared to recollect, and smiled as far back as her wisdom teeth. Diva couldn't do that. "'I have it,' she said. "'It was the wool I ordered at Haynes, and then he sold it you, and I couldn't get any more.' "'So it was,' said Diva. "'Upset you a bit. There was the wool in the shop. I bought it.' "'Yes, dear, I see you did. But that wasn't what I popped in about. This coal strike, you know.' got a cellar full said diva diva you have not been hoarding have you asked miss mapp with great anxiety they can take away every atom of coal you've got if so and fine you i don't know what for every hundredweight of it pooh said diva rather forcing the indifference of this rude interjection yes love pooh by all means if you like pooing said miss mapp but i should have felt very unfriendly if one morning i found you were fined found you were fined quite a play upon words, and I hadn't warned you. Diva felt a little less pooish. But how much do they allow you to have? she asked. Oh, quite a little. Enough to go on with, but I dare say they won't discover you. I just took the trouble to come and warn you. Diva did remember something about hoarding. There had surely been dreadful exposures of prudent housekeepers in the papers which were very uncomfortable reading. But all these orders were only for the period of the war she said. No doubt you're right, dear, said Miss Mapp brightly. I'm sure I hope you are. Only if the coal strike comes on, I think you'll find that the regulations against hoarding are quite as severe as they ever were. Food hoarding, too. Twemlow, such a civil man, tells me that he thinks we shall have plenty of food, or anyhow sufficient for everybody for quite a long time, provided that there's no hoarding. 
Not been hoarding food too, dear Diva. You naughty thing. I believe that great cupboard is full of sardines and biscuits and bovril. Nothing of the kind, said Diva indignantly. You shall see for yourself and then she suddenly remembered that the cupboard was full of chintz curtains and little bunches of pink roses neatly cut out of them and a pair of nail scissors there was a perfectly perceptible pause during which miss mapp noticed that there were no curtains over the window there certainly used to be and they matched with the chintz cover of the window seat which was decorated with little bunches of pink roses peeping through trellis this was in the nature of a bonus she had not up till then connected the chintz curtains with the little things that had fluttered down upon her and were now safe in her glove her only real object in this call had been to instill a general uneasiness into diva's mind about the coal strike and the danger of being well provided with fuel that she humbly hoped that she had accomplished she got up must be going she said such a lovely little chat but what has happened to your pretty curtains gone to the wash said diva firmly liar thought miss mapp as she tripped downstairs diva would have sent the cover of the window seat too if that was the case liar she thought again as she kissed her hand to diva who was looking gloomily out of the window as soon as miss mapp had gained her garden room she examined the mysterious treasures in her left hand glove without the smallest doubt diva had taken down her curtains and high time too for they were sadly shabby and was cutting the roses out of them but what on earth was she doing that for for what garish purpose could she want to use bunches of roses cut out of chintz curtains miss mapp had put the two specimens of which she had so providentially become possessed in her lap and they looked very pretty against the navy blue of her skirt diva was very ingenious she used up all sorts of odds and ends in a way that did credit to her undoubtedly parsimonious qualities she could trim a hat with a toothbrush and a banana in such a way that it looked quite parisian till you firmly analyzed its component parts and most of her ingenuity was devoted to dress the more was the pity that she had such a roundabout figure that her waistband always reminded you of the equator eureka said miss mapp aloud and though the telephone bell was ringing and the postulant might be one of the servants friends ringing them up at an hour when their mistress was usually in the high street she got glided swiftly to the large cupboard underneath the stairs which was full of the things which no right-minded person could bear to throw away broken basket chairs pieces of brown paper cardboard boxes without lids and cardboard lids without boxes old bags with holes in them keys without locks and locks without keys and worn chintz covers there was one it had once adorned the sofa in the garden room covered with red poppies very easy to cut out and miss mapp dragged it dustily from its corner setting in motion a perfect cascade of cardboard lids and some door handles withers had answered the telephone and came to announce that twemlow the grocer regretted he had only two large tins of corned beef but then say i will have the tongue as well withers said miss mapp just a tongue and then i shall want you and mary to do some cutting out for me the three went to work with feverish energy for diva had got a start and by four o'clock that afternoon there were enough poppies cut out to furnish when in seed a whole street of opium dens the dress selected for decoration was apart from a few mildewed spots 
the colour of ripe corn, which was superbly appropriate for September. Poppies in the corn, said Miss Mapp over and over to herself, remembering some sweet verses she had once read by Bernard Shaw or Clement Shorter or somebody like that about a garden of sleep somewhere in Norfolk. No one can work as neatly as you, Withers, she said gaily, and I shall ask you to do the most difficult part. I want you to sew my lovely poppies over the collar and facings of the jacket, just spacing them a little and making a dainty irregularity. And then Mary, won't you Mary, will do the same with the waistband while I put a border of them round the skirt, and my dear old dress will look quite new and lovely. I shall be at home to nobody withers this afternoon, even if the Prince of Wales came and sat on my doorstep again. We'll all work together in the garden, shall we? And you and Mary must scold me if you think I'm not working hard enough. It will be delicious in the garden. Thanks to this pleasant plan, there was not much opportunity for Withers and Mary to be idle. Just about the time that this harmonious party began their work, a far-from-harmonious couple were being just as industrious in the grand spacious bunker in front of the tee to the last hole on the golf links. It was a beautiful bunker, consisting of a great slope of loose, steep sand against the face of the hill and solidly shored up with timber. The navy had been in better form today and after a decisive victory over the army in the morning and an indemnity of half a crown, its match in the afternoon, with just the last hole to play, was all square. So Captain Puffin, having the honour, hit a low, nervous drive that tapped loudly at the timbered wall of the bunker, and cuddled down below it, well protected from any future assault. "'Phew! That about settles it,' said Major Flint boisterously. "'Bad place to top a ball. Give me the hole.' This insolent question needed no answer, and Major Flint drove, skying the ball to a prodigious height. But it had to come to earth some time, and it fell like Lucifer, son of the morning, in the middle of the same bunker. So the army played three more, and sweating profusely, got out. Then it was the Navy's turn, and the Navy had to lie on its keel above the boards of the bunker in order to reach its ball at all, and missed it twice. "'Better give it up, old chap,' said Major Flint. "'Unplayable.' "'Then see me play it,' said Captain Puffin, with a chewing motion of his jaws. "'We shall miss the tram,' said the Major, and with the intention of giving annoyance he sat down in the bunker with his back to Captain Puffin and lit a cigarette. At his third attempt nothing happened. At the fourth the ball flew against the boards, rebounded briskly again into the bunker, trickled down the steep, sandy slope, and hit the Major's boot.' "'Hit you, I think,' said Captain Puffin. "'Ha! So it's my hole, Major.' Major Flint had a short fit of aphasia. He opened and shut his mouth and foamed. Then he took a half-crown from his pocket. "'Give that to the Captain,' he said to his caddy, and without looking round, walked away in the direction of the tram. He had not gone a hundred yards when the whistle sounded, and it puffed away homewards with an ever-increasing velocity." Weak and trembling from passion, Major Flint found that after a few tottering steps in the direction of Tilling, he would be totally unable to get there unless fortified by some strong stimulant, and turned back to the clubhouse to obtain it. He was always dead lame when beaten at golf, while Captain Puffin was lame in any circumstances, and the two, no longer on speaking terms, hobbled into the clubhouse, one after the other, each unconscious of the other's presence. Summoning his last remaining strength, Major Flint roared for whiskey, and was told that, according to regulation, 
he could not be served until six. There was lemonade and stone ginger beer. You might as well have offered a man-eating tiger bread and milk. Even the threat that he would instantly resign his membership unless provided with drink produced no effect on a polite steward, and he sat down to recover as best he might with an old volume of punch. This seemed to do him little good. His forced abstemiousness was rendered the more intolerable by the fact that Captain Puffin, hobbling in immediately afterwards, fetched from his locker a large flask of the required elixir, and proceeded to mix himself a long, strong tumblerful. After the Major's rudeness in the matter of the half-crown, it was impossible for any sailor of spirit to take the first step towards reconciliation. Thirst is a great leveller. By the time the refreshed Puffin had penetrated halfway down his glass, the Major found it impossible to be proud and proper any longer. He hated saying he was sorry, no man more, and he wouldn't have been sorry if he had been able to get a drink. He twirled his moustache a great many times and cleared his throat. It wanted more than that to clear it, and capitulated. Upon my word, Puffin, I'm ashamed of myself for <sighs> not taking my defeat better, he said. A man's no business to let a game ruffle him. Puffin gave his alto-cackling laugh. Oh, that's all right, Major, he said. I know it's awfully hard to lose like a gentleman. He let this sink in, then added, Have a drink, old chap? Major Flint flew to his feet. Well, thank ye, thank ye, he said. Now, where's that soda water you offered me just now? He shouted to the steward. The speed and completeness of the reconciliation was in no way remarkable. For when two men quarrel whenever they meet, it follows that they make it up again with corresponding frequency, else there could be no fresh quarrels at all. This one had been a shade more acute than most, and the drop into amity again was a shade more precipitous. Major Flint, in his eagerness, had put most of his moustache into the life-giving tumbler and dried it on his handkerchief. After all, it was a most amusing incident, he said. There was I with my back turned, waiting for you to give it up, when your bl wretched little ball hit my foot. I must remember that. I'll serve you with the same spoon some day. At least I would if I thought it sportsmanlike. Well, well, enough said. Astonishing good whiskey, that of yours. Captain Puffin helped himself to rather more than half of what now remained in the flask. Help yourself, Major, he said. Well, thank ye, I don't mind if I do, he said, reversing the flask over the tumbler. There's a good tramp in front of us now that the last tram has gone. Tram and tramp, upon my word, I've half a mind to telephone for a taxi. This, of course, was a direct hint. Puffin ought clearly to pay for a taxi, having won two half-crowns to-day. This casual drink did not constitute the usual drink, stood by the winner, and paid for with cash over the counter. A drink or two, from a flask, was not the same thing. Puffin naturally saw it in another light. He had paid for the whiskey which Major Flink had drunk, or owed for it, in his wine merchant's bill. That was money just as much as a florin pushed across the counter. But he was so excessively pleased with himself over the adroitness with which he had claimed the last hole that he quite overstepped the bounds of his habitual parsimony. "'Well, you trot along to the telephone and order a taxi,' he said, "'and I'll pay for it.' "'Done with you,' said the other. Their comradeship was now on its most felicitous level again, and they sat on the bench outside the clubhouse till the arrival of their unusual conveyance. 
"'Lunching at the Poppets tomorrow?' asked Major Flint. "'Yes. Meet you there? Good. Bridge afterwards, I suppose.' "'Sure to be. Wish there was a chance of more red currant fool. That was a decent tipple, all but the red currants. If I had had all the old brandy that was served for my ration in one glass, and all the champagne in another, I should have been better content.' Captain Puffin was a great cynic in his own misogynistic way. "'Camouflage for the fair sex,' he said. "'A woman will lick up half a bottle of brandy if it's called plum pudding and ask for more, whereas if you offered her a small brandy and soda, she would think you were insulting her.' "'Bless them, the funny little fairies,' said the Major. "'Well, what I tell you is true, Major,' said Puffin. "'There's old Map. Teetotaler, she calls herself.' but she played a bosun's part in that red fool current but rosy i thought her as we escorted her home so she was said the major so she was said good-bye to us on her doorstep as if she thought she was a perfect venus anna anna something anna domini giggled puffin well well we all get along in the tooth of time said major flint charitably fine figure of a woman though eh said puffin archly now none of your sailor talk ashore captain said the major in high good humour i'm not a marrying man any more than you are better if i had been perhaps more years ago than i care to think about dear me my wound's going to trouble me to-night what do you do for it major asked puffin do for it think of old times a bit over my diaries going to let the world have a look at them some day asked puffin no sir i am not said major flint perhaps a hundred years hence the date i have named in my will for their publication some one may think them not so uninteresting but all this toasting and buttering and grilling and frying your friends and serving them up hot for all the old cats at a tea-table to mew over pah puffin was silent a moment in appreciation of these noble sentiments but you put in a lot of work over them he said at length often when i'm going up to bed i see the light still burning in your sitting-room window and if it comes to that rejoined the major i'm sure i've often dozed off when i'm in bed and awoken again and pulled up my blind and what not and there's your light still burning powerful long roads those old romans must have made captain the ice was not broken but it was cracking in all directions under this unexampled thaw the two had clearly indicated a mutual suspicion of each other's industrious habits after dinner. They had never got quite so far as this before. Some quarrel had congealed the surface again. But now, with the desperate disagreement just behind them, and the unusual luxury of a taxi just in front, the vernal airs continued blowing in that most spring-like manner. "'Yes, that's true enough,' said Puffin. "'Long roads they were, and dry roads at that and if i stuck to them from after my supper every evening till midnight or more i should be smothered in dust unless you wash the dust down just once in a while said major flint just so brain works an exhausting process requires a little stimulant now and again said puffin i sit in my chair you understand and perhaps doze for a bit after my supper and then i'll get my maps out and have them handy beside me and then, if there's something interesting in the evening paper, perhaps I'll have a look at it, and bless me if by that time it isn't already half-past ten or eleven, and it seems useless to tackle archaeology then. And I just 
just while away the time till I'm sleepy. But there seems to be a sort of legend among the ladies here that I'm a great student of local topography and Roman roads and all sorts of truck, and I find it better to leave it at that. Tiresome to go into long explanations. In fact, added Puffin in a burst of confidence, the study I've done on Roman roads these last six months wouldn't cover a threepenny piece. Major Flint gave a loud choking guffaw and beat his fat leg. Well, if that's not the best joke I've heard for many a long day, he said. There, I've been in the house opposite you these last two years, seeing your light burning late night after night and thinking to myself, there's my friend Puffin still at it. Fine thing to be an enthusiastic archaeologist like that. That makes short work of a lonely evening for him if he's so buried in his books or his maps. Maps! <laughs> that he doesn't seem to notice whether it's twelve o'clock or one or two, maybe. And all the time you've been sitting snoozing and boozing in your chair with your glass handy to wash the dust down. Puffin added his falsetto cackle to this merriment. And I've often thought to myself, he said, there's my friend the Major in his study opposite, with all his diaries round him, making a note here and copying an extract there, and conferring with the Viceroy one day, and reprimanding the Maharaja of Bombiboo the another. He's spending the evening on India's coral strand, he is, having tiffin and shooting tigers and God knows what. The Major's laughter boomed out again. And I never kept a diary in my life, he cried. Why, there's enough cream in this situation to make a dish full of meringues. You and I, you know, the students of tilling, the serious-minded students who do a hard day's work when all the pretty ladies have gone to bed. Often and often as old, I mean that fine woman, Miss Mapp, told me that I work too hard at night, recommended me to get earlier to bed and do my work between six and eight in the morning. Six and eight in the morning! It's a queer time of day to recommend an old campaigner to be awake at. Often she's talked to you, too, I bet my hat, about sitting up late and exhausting the nervous faculties. Major Flint choked and laughed and inhaled tobacco smoke till he got purple in the face. And you sitting up one side of the street, he gasped, pretending to be interested in Roman roads and me on the other pulling a long face over my diaries, and neither of us with a Roman road or a diary to our names. Let's have an end to such unsociable arrangements, old friend. You lining your Roman roads and the bottle to lay the dust over to me one night, and I'll bring my diaries and my peg over to you the next. Never drink alone. One of the maxims in life, if you can find someone to drink with you. And there were you, within a few yards of me, all the time, sitting by your old solitary self. And there was I, sitting by my old solitary self. And we each thought the other a serious-minded old buffer, busy on his life-work. I'm blessed if I ever heard of two such pompous old frauds as you and I, Captain. What a sight of hypocrisy there is in the world, to be sure. No offense, mind, I'm as bad as you, and you're as bad as me, and we're both as bad as each other. But no more solitary confinement of an evening for Benjamin Flint as long as you're agreeable. The advent of the taxi was announced, and arm in arm they limped down the steep path together to the road. A little way off to the left was the great bunker, which, primarily, was the cause of their present amity. As they drove by it, the Major waggled his red hand at it. 
Ah, reservoir, he said. Back again soon. End of chapter three, part one.